The other evening, Hannah and I watched one of our favorite movies, The Day After Tomorrow. And maybe it's something really vain in me, but I sometimes like to imagine myself as Jake Hall on the phone to my son Sam, who is in the flooded ground floor of the library in Manhattan, saying to him, stay where you are, I will come for you. We like to place ourselves in stories. And if I could choose to be in one of the stories of Jesus' resurrection, indeed, any of the stories recorded in the Gospels of Jesus' life, it would be this one. The story of breakfast by the Sea of Galilee with Jesus after the resurrection. I'm not even sure why this is so. Now, you'll all be aware of my great love for breakfast. And I'm more of a shreddies and toast man than a fish and bread man. But hey, it's breakfast. You also, however, may not be aware of the fact that I love picnics on the beach. Picnics on the large beach at Port Stewart behind a windbreak with a howling gale blowing around you and sand in the sandwiches. There is nothing quite like it. And especially picnic on the beach after a swim in the sea. And all these elements that I love so much are in this story. But I don't think that's what it is that makes me love it so much, that makes me want to be in it so much. I think it's something else that pulls me into this story. It is the Jesus I see here in whose company I so desperately want to be. This is a Jesus I can look at. I have to force myself to look at the Jesus of Good Friday because of my shame. My sense that it was my sin that occasioned this dreadful set of circumstances. But to have been in this moment on the shore of the Sea of Galilee, this is a Jesus I can look at. To be there and to have heard those words of invitation, come and have breakfast. Over and over again, Jesus' life was marked by the invitation to share companionship with him. Over fish and bread, over loaves and fishes, over bread and wine. And in this story, where this invitation is extended, we see a Jesus who is, first of all, the giving Jesus. The story that Lucy read for us is a story where Jesus sets up the whole event. It's a bit hard to sort out the order of the resurrection stories that we find in the four Gospels. John said in those verses that we read earlier, this was now the third time Jesus appeared to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. And certainly this is the third time in the events that are recorded by John. But at least some of the appearances recorded in the Gospels of Matthew and Luke must also have happened before this story. And the one recorded in the book of the Acts must have happened after it. So it's a bit difficult to sort out exactly the geography of the where and when of the stories of Jesus' resurrection. And this story, the one we're thinking about today, takes us back to the very beginning of Jesus' earthly ministry and the calling of the first disciples. Because in this story, we are in Galilee, 
on the shore of the lake with fishermen, fishermen who have been out all night and caught nothing. Why Peter is fishing in this story is so hard to know. He's fishing because he was bored. He couldn't bear to sit around. He's fishing out of habit. He doesn't know what else to do. He's fishing out of need. And Jesus meets the need in the story. Throw your net on the right side of the boat, he says, and you will find some fish. Some commentators say that fishing boats on the Sea of Galilee in Jesus' day had the steering gear on the right-hand side of the boat. The result of that was that fishermen normally fished out of the left-hand side of the boat where the nets would not get entangled with the steering gear. So for Jesus to instruct the disciples in the boat to cast their net on the right-hand side was a strange command. Practically, it was a strange command because it was awkward to perform. But experientially, it was a strange command because no one knew these waters like Peter did. And even if he was a little rusty after at least three years away from his craft, you'd think he'd know where the fish were most likely to be. But the result of obeying the call they heard from the shore was spectacular. John says when they did, when they cast their nets on the right-hand side of the boat, they were unable to haul the net in because of the large number of fish. So large a haul, in fact, that they couldn't get the net into the boat. So large a haul that someone actually counted it, 153 fish. This was a gift. A gift of the kind that marked Jesus' life. Always his gifts were the same. The wine at the wedding feast, which was the best wine of the day. The 12 uneaten basketfuls of food left over when the 5,000 were fed. The healed paralytic man who took up his bed and left the house where Jesus had healed him, not just healed, but also forgiven of the sin which for years he had thought were the reason for his disability. These were the kinds of gifts that Jesus gave, gifts that are overflowing. And Paul says in his second letter to the Corinthians, Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. As Eugene Peterson translates that in the message, thank God for this gift, his gift. No language can praise it enough. There are no words. In a moment or two, we will remember that gift, that indescribable gift to which all the other gifts of Jesus point Jesus said, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Whoever eats this bread will live forever. This bread is my flesh, which I give for the life of the world. So I imagine myself on the shore of the Sea of Galilee on that morning, counting the fish in the net, but realizing that as I count them, I am not just counting fish. I am counting the abundance of the generosity of the Lord in fish and on a cross. I see in this story the giving Jesus. 
but I also see the intimate Jesus. There's something intimate about a meal together. I remember uh, when I was a teenager uh, that Christine had to cook a meal for someone as some part of uh, a badge that she was seeking to gain in the girls' brigade. And uh, at that particular time, uh, she and I um, had had a falling out and uh, we were no longer an item. But when she had the meal to cook, uh, she asked me if uh, I would be willing to come and she would cook the meal for me. And I remember being there in the church halls uh, in the congregation we belonged to in Derry and being served this lovely meal. And it felt so awkward because it was intimate and yet there was something between us. And I remember leaving the hall that night and knowing that I had to do whatever I had to do to get her back. And here we are on the seashore at one of the most romantic moments of the day, just as dawn was breaking. I only ever attended one true Easter dawn service. I only ever was at an Easter dawn service once when the dawn actually broke during the service. It took place in the Anglo-Norman castle in the middle of Clock Village in County Down. When we began the service, it was pitch black. You could barely see in front of your face. But during the course of the service, the sun came up. And it's the only thing I actually remember about that service. It was truly magical. And it was just at that moment of the day, as the sun was rising, that we read in John 21, when they landed, they saw a fire of burning coals there with fish on it and some bread. And Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish you have caught. You always feel so much more a part of a meal in a friend's house if you bring something with you to add to the occasion. A bottle of something, a dessert, or even just a candle to be lit on the table. And so Jesus invites the disciples to bring some of the fish they have caught, to contribute to, to add to the intimacy of this moment. And this is the bit in the story where I want to be Peter. That net which was so full of fish that five of them couldn't land it. He goes and drags onto the shore single-handed. And there I am, as Peter, dragging the net onto the shore, searching through the wet, still-flapping fish for the best-looking ones for just such a meal and for just such a host. It was a moment of supreme intimacy. We only know some of the conversation that took place that day. No doubt most of it was just day-to-day -day stuff. It was like a thousand conversations this group of friends had shared on a daily basis for the last three years. But finally, as conversations like that often do, it became heart-to-heart. -heart. Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these Yes, Lord, he said, you know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. At last, the conversation came round to love and loyalty, to confession and forgiveness, 
to warning and commissioning. And it was an intimate moment. But Peter does one of those things that we classically do in moments of intimacy when it's a bit too much and we try diversionary tactics. Looking at John, who is also present, he says to Jesus, what about him? And Jesus replies, if I want him to remain alive until I return, what is that to you? You must follow me. In the intimacy of the moment, this is hard. It's none of your business, Peter. But it's also beautiful. Because as Jesus says to Peter, it's none of your business what happens to John, what, what are my intentions or plans for him and what we are going to do together in the days to come. But in that moment, you also discover that each life is significant. Peter's was just as important as John's. Jesus had plans. Jesus had hopes and expectations that were going to be worked out in Simon Peter's future. Each life intimately known. Each life intimately valued. The intimate Jesus and lastly, the living Jesus. It is obvious from this story that the resurrection appearances of Jesus were at the very least confusing to his closest disciples. Okay, in this story we're back in Galilee, but it's not like it was in the early days. In those days, Jesus was always there. Now he came and went seemingly without explanation. And you never really knew when he would be there. Certainly that day on the shore, no one expected Jesus to be there. You know, it's a bit like an experience I've had sometimes in church on a Sunday morning, especially perhaps at 11 o'clock when we're in this larger building. You know, and I look down into the congregation and I see a face and it appears to be the face of somebody uh, that I knew a long time ago and they're sitting near the back and I'm trying to figure out, is it them, is it not them? I'm not expecting to see that person. I remember one specific Sunday um, when a couple from Derry turned up at worship whom Christine and I have known since we were uh, young people uh, in the youth fellowship in the church that we grew up in there. And, and they would have been there. And uh, I hadn't seen either of them for a long time. And I looked and thought, that looks really like Dawn and William. But what would they be doing here? I couldn't wait to the end of the service to get down to see if it actually was the people I thought it was. And it was. I wasn't expecting to see them. And John says, early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples did not realize that it was Jesus. They weren't expecting to see him. It was John who realized it first. And it was the fish that did it for him. He realized when this massive haul of fish came in, he had deja vu. He had been here before. He had seen this same scene. He had replayed it in his mind a hundred times. But here it was happening again right now. And suddenly he understood what was going on. It was Jesus on the shore. And I, I like to imagine him as he realized this, savoring the moment, knowing that what happened next was going to be special. You know, it's kind of like that moment that some of you may uh, have shared in, you know, where you go to the hospital to collect your wife 
and the newborn baby that she has in her arms. And you know you've got to go to do it this afternoon and you're looking forward to that moment, but you can wait for it and you can savour it because you know that what is going to follow it is going to be very special. He could wait to enjoy the moment. Peter couldn't. Stripped to his underwear in the boat, he pulls on his outer garment and flings himself into the water. The verb that is used to describe Peter getting into the water is the same verb used to describe casting a net into the sea. I like to imagine an almighty splash as Peter hits the water and then he swims. It was a hundred meters from shore, too deep at that point to wade in. He swims to the shore. He comes on the picnic, soaking wet, breathing heavenly, heavily with the broadest grin on his face you've ever seen. It says in John 21, none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. This changed everything. It didn't take away the uncertainties. It didn't answer the thousand questions about the how. It didn't map out in detail their future. But they were undeniably in the company of the living Jesus, eating breakfast on the beach. Jesus was alive. They didn't dare ask him who he was because they knew it was him. And it changed everything. I was floundering around about this sermon. It's been a tough week. I was numb and deaf, dreading sitting down at the keyboard to try to write it. So I did what you do in circumstances like that. I got up from the keyboard and went down to the kitchen to make a cup of coffee. And as I filled the cafetiere with water, my phone vibrated in my pocket and I pulled it out and a Facebook message had just arrived from a member of the congregation. There were no words in the message, just an attached video. It was a video of a song about Jesus and the cross. I clicked on the video and all of a sudden, as I watched, Jesus came to Dalewood, present with me, arms around me in my own kitchen, the giving, intimate, living Jesus. It was like that moment John records at the beginning of the book of Revelation. He placed his right hand on me and said, do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead and now, look, I am alive forever and ever. The living Jesus risen and among us by his Holy Spirit and just now in a moment or two in bread and wine. Come, he says, come and break your fast.